Musicpreneur.com. Great moments are born from great opportunity. A society either rises or falls to the level of its art. If you're good at something, never do it for free. You love music. You've devoted your life to music. Why sell yourself short by sharing your life's passion working for, quote, the man? You musicians, you're too, too musical. <laughs> Netflix is not your friend, people. Get off the couch, take a shower, comb your hair, and get out there. You're not doing it for the money. You're doing it for what the money says. And it says what it says to any player that makes big money, that they're worth it. We could have allowed it to steal our joy, but instead it steeled our inner fortitude. You spend time with your family? Because a man who doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. The world will point out every reason why I should just quit, but I won't quit for one reason, because I say so. To assist in your journey of making money making music, the musicpreneur.com podcast starts now. Here's your host, James Newcomb. This is a treat for me, and this is something I've never actually done. So, translation, we'll see how this goes. But we have on the call, we have uh, David Cutler who is the uh, director of the Savvy Arts Venture Challenge and also the director of musical entrepreneurship at the University of South Carolina. Hello, David. Hello, how are you? And we have Jennifer Rosenfeld, who is the founder and co-founder and CEO of iCadenza, which is a great resource for musicians who don't want to starve. Welcome, Jennifer. Thanks. And of course, we have our special, uh, special guest of honor, Jeff Goins, who is the author of Real Artists Don't Starve. Welcome, Jeff. Hey, guys. Good to be here. All right. So, Jeff, I just want to start by saying that I heard you on Entrepreneur on Fire last year. Oh, And, cool. like, I'm a big fan of John Lee Dumas. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just I loved the, the, uh, the dialogue about Michelangelo. Oh, yeah. Like, I was just really, I just, that really caught my attention. So, I bought the book and everything. And it, it's just, it's just, Easily in the, my top five books that really changed mm. my own perspective, especially uh, me personally as as a musicpreneur. Uh, just, it want I, I just wanted to say thank you for writing that. Really solidified a lot of things for me personally. So I just want to say thanks for writing that. It was really good stuff. Well, thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. All right, but since you've written that, you've also been busy writing a couple of other things. So what is going on in your world right now? Actually, the the paperback version of Real Artists Don't Starve comes out later this month. Uh, uh, um, so that uh, I've got that look, to look forward to. Uh, I run an online business for writers and creatives, and so you know we've been you know running some programs there, and I, I do a little bit of uh, coaching, and I have a, a, a group mastermind uh, of mostly writers and communicators that I've been working with. So yeah, you know, staying busy, uh, speaking quite a bit, and that's been that's been a fun thing to do. I really enjoy doing that. So a smattering of assorted things. As we all do. Yeah. All right. So I'm not exactly sure how this is going to go, but uh, I'm the least qualified of of, of the four of us on this call to talk about this. So Mm -hmm. David and Jennifer and and of course, Jeff are, are, we're we're just going to see how this goes, but like the real artists don't starve is the centerpiece of our conversation. But I just, let's, let's just talk about uh, like chapter nine of the book was okay. probably my favorite of the book. And that's something that is so, you hear this all the time. Musicians, they feel this need or they, they, 
they're told work for free and you get, can get some exposure, but you're like, no, that, that is not the way how it, that's not the way it works. That's not the attitude that you should have if you really want to value your art. So could you just speak a little bit? And of course, Jennifer and David, you can, uh, this is a group discussion. So, but Jeff, could you just speak a little bit about that, like sort of your philosophy on what an artist should do to properly value or, or charge for their work? The idea here is to never work for free, to always work for something. But sometimes when I talk about this, people get, you know, the idea like, well, you've got to, you've got to start for free. This is how you, you know, build your portfolio. This is how you get noticed. And um, I think that's true. Uh, however, I don't think in those instances you're actually working for free. So if uh, I'm a musician and, uh, you know, I'm doing a, a gig, you know, say here in Nashville at a particular venue like the Bluebird Cafe uh, that is renowned for, you know, uh, discovering new musical acts, then I may consider that marketing, right? So I'm doing the gig technically for free, but I know this, this, and this music executive are going to be in the audience and, and therefore, my job is to get in front of those people and hopefully follow up with them. Uh, so it doesn't mean that you're always going to get a paycheck for the work that you do. Uh, it does mean that you're going to be intentional and you're always going to be working for something. And that something should never be the elusive opportunity, right? So lots of creatives, I mean, musicians, uh, visual artists, writers are, are sold a lie, in my opinion, uh, that if you do enough work for free, eventually you'll get noticed and eventually somebody will pay you for this. Uh, Harlan Ellison has a great video on YouTube, which I talk about in the uh, book, where basically he's just ranting uh, against the reality. Uh, he's a screenwriter, uh, worked on Babylon 5 and a bunch of you know, different great uh, works of science fiction, movies, shows, etc. Um, but he says in Hollywood, there's always some schmuck that will do the work for free that's undercutting the professionals. And there is an endless supply of these people. So it's really easy to take advantage. It's, it's actually true in Nashville, uh, where I live, where there's an endless supply of new musicians moving to town uh, who are always willing to work for free in order to get an opportunity. And the reality is, more often than not, those opportunities don't lead to anything. Because you're not doing it with any uh, intention. You're just doing a bunch of stuff for free in hopes that something's going to come back around to you. Uh, I have found that to rarely be a useful strategy because it's not a strategy. You're just not valuing your work. And I believe that if you don't value your work, nobody else will. So you have to have an end game with working. Yeah. Like, like if you're not going to get paid, you, there has to be like, this is going to lead to something. Yeah. And, and that something needs to have value. So like if I want to get more speaking gigs, um, you know, I may do a gig for free. I did this early on, but I'm doing the gig, say, out of venue where they have audiovisual uh, capability. And, and so I'll go, Hey, you know, I'm happy to do this gig for free, but I'd love to get that recording and be able to use that in my speaker reel so that I can get more gigs. Uh, and they go, yeah, sure. That sounds great. So, I mean, that thing, you know, that asset that I am, uh, you know, essentially bartering for is worth thousands of dollars. If I were to go out and have to hire, you know, rent a venue and hire a video, team to record me delivering a talk so that I could then use that as a marketing asset to get uh, more speaking gigs that would cost me thousands of dollars. So that's a, that's a fair trade versus I'm just going to do a bunch of stuff for free. I'm going to write a bunch, uh, do a bunch of shows, give away a bunch of my artwork in hope that eventually the work is going to spread. 
there's just, especially with the internet, there's so many opportunities to endlessly give your work away to everyone forever that what will it lead except to the, to accept the expectation that she works for free. He works for free. Yeah. David and Jennifer, I know that you guys work a lot with musicians and uh, this, this has to come up a lot. Do you have any comments on what Jeff has just said? Yeah, sure. I, I agree with a lot of what Jeff has said. You know, I, I want to make the distinction of playing for free and playing for nothing. Those are not the same things. And so when you talk about having some kind of a value on the other end, uh, you know, money is only one of several economies that are at play. And I think that's what you were talking about in that particular example. Uh, I will say as, you know, as someone who not only works with a lot of musicians and is a musician, mm -hmm. I have created very intentionally a career model where I can allow for myself to play for free. Mm -hmm. And I, I, from my perspective, um, you know, there, there are a bunch of uh, price points that I charge in my life, right? I charge average, above average, below average, free, and really expensive. And I, I personally feel that there's value to all of those, although I'm below average is something that I'm kind of taken out. Mm. Uh, but I'll tell you, the, to me, the most offensive price point is cheap. Mm. Because I do not believe that my value as an artist is cheap. And there is this notion that if you play for something in exchange for, you know, you play a four-hour gig in exchange for $50 or something like that, that there was a fair exchange of services, which totally undervalues the work. On the other hand, when you do something for free, I feel often I'm treated a lot better by someone who is very grateful because they understand there isn't that inherent trade that is happening. Yeah. And... Uh, so, so that has been actually important, but it doesn't mean to jump on any free uh, opportunity, but only those that really are, you know, repaying a favor maybe. Uh, but I want to say also that in order to create a, create a model, so from my perspective, where I am able to go to uh, South America and work with impoverished students on music education for a week, I have to create a career model that will work, which means it's really important to have some high ticket items in my arsenal of things that I do so that I can afford to take a week to do a project like that, even if there's not direct financial compensation from it. I was just gonna say, I love this conversation because I think it, it pulls apart the many layers of nuance that exist when it comes to compensation for creatives. And something that I'm often talking to clients about is the compensation at face value may or may not like we can tweak what that should be, but I think what really matters is what is a scenario that's going to enable me or enable a musician to show up and do their best work. And if they have accepted a gig that's not paid or that is vastly underpaid or that they realize that they're actually losing money by taking this opportunity, they show up with feelings of resentment, regret, of like, why did I take this on? And then how are you supposed to bring your A game and do the kind of work that other people will connect with? So I think energetically, psychologically, that's the decision that we need to make is how do I structure the compensation so that it's going to motivate me to do the kind of work that, that I want to be doing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think in, in my work, it, it really ranges, like David said, across that whole spectrum to be able to know that the things that I say yes to, I can still do with 
complete, you know, excitement, even if the compensation is not as high as, you know, as something else that I do. Right. I'm, I'm sensing a uh, kind of a, a common theme from everyone is that there has to be an end game. And like Jeff, like you said something in your book, I, I think it said something like, uh, when you charge for what you do, even if it's not like for money, even if it's for, you, you have that end game, there's some dignity in it. And like you, like you said, Jeff, like if, if you're just always taken, if you're that person that's always undercutting your, the other musicians in town, if you're always working for free and, and there's just no reason for it, there's really no dignity to it. And you're really shortchanging your fellow musicians. Yeah. And you're shortchanging yourself too, right? Yeah. You're letting yourself be, uh, get taken advantage of. Um, and in the end, it's just, it's not going to be a viable career option. Um, I, I agree with, with David that, you know, um, you shouldn't work for nothing. And I, and I agree with the nuance of nothing versus free. I mean, that, that makes sense. I think that the point of making money is to make more art, which is something that mm. I heard Jennifer hint at. No creative that I know. I mean, I'm sure there are people that do it for the money, uh, but almost every artist, musician, writer I know, they go, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily care about the money. I care about the art. And anybody who, I mean, I remember reading about David Bowie even talking about his body of work and he was very prolific and very successful. And he said, I would rather create an important piece of art than I would do something that is guaranteed to succeed. Like I want to do important work, not just successful work. Every creative I talk to basically feels that way and yet have to pay the bills. And, and there's something validating about getting paid. Hmm. I remember talking to an artist named Melissa Dinwiddie and she got $25 for her first commission uh, which was a big deal to her. She, that wasn't cheap for her. That was a, you know, she was going from nothing to something and she realized I'm getting paid. She said this, she said, now that I'm getting paid, I know that nobody can dispute that I am actually an artist. Hmm. So for all the talk that we want to, that we say as, as creatives about like, it's not about the money. And it's not, I think you make money to make more art. You don't make art to make money, you make money to make more art. Um, for all that talk about it, there is a defining point for every creative professional I've ever talked to where like once they get paid for something, it's a big, big deal. Hmm. You know, the, the root word of validation is value. And there's just something powerful about somebody saying, you made this here. I, I want to pay you for it. Hmm. And money is just, it, it, it means nothing, right? Like it is, it is just a means of expressing value, right? I give you this piece of paper, right? It, it, it is worth literally nothing. And yet you can take this piece of paper and go get something else that is valuable to you. And so it's just a way of saying this actually matters. And I think as artists, we're very scared to talk about money because it's not about the money. I get that. On the other hand, I, I think it's kind of rare to meet somebody where like that didn't sort of change, you know, uh, um, Jennifer's talking about this. It changes the way you approach the work because it, in some ways, yes, it's a job. Now in other ways you're like, this is real. This isn't play. This isn't just fun. This is a legitimate thing. And that can be really exciting too. Hmm. Well, I want to get David and Jennifer's thoughts on this. Do you encounter some resistance among musicians that you work with to accept money or is there, is there a conflict of interest that you sense among musicians to, Taking money for their music, does, do, they, do they feel like it sort of taints 
their art, as it were? You know, I think this has been a trend that has really shifted. I mean, when I was coming up, I mean, you almost felt guilty if you secretly admitted that you didn't want to live the life of poverty off of food stamps and yeah. you know, out of a cardboard box and uh, that you were, you know, selling your soul to the devil or something. And I think it really has shifted. I think most people truly understand that that's not, that's not the goal and they, they will secretly or even outwardly admit that they would like to uh, be able to eat a couple mm. times a week or whatever it is. Right? <laughs> But, that, but there, there are some challenges along the way. And one, one is that they just don't always have the skills to be able to do that, right? And so I agree with this idea that we often undervalue our work. But what I like to do in a conversation like this is just to be like the person who looks at it a little differently so we have more discourse. So whatever you guys say, I'll just try and say it differently. There we go. <laughs> Thank nice. you. Even though I agree with everything that you say, <laughs> for the most part. But, you know, this concept, I love the idea of, you know, having this discussion around free because it's, re- it's a really interesting concept. And free, free is a very different starting point than value, right? Free is, free is a tangible, uh, especially when we're talking about gratis, which is different than libre, right? There are two kinds of free too, right? right. That, that speech should be free, but then something you can get it for without paying for gratis. Right. So let, let me suggest this. Free has always been around. Free has always been a concept that every business of every time has used, right? Free parking, free weekend minutes, free, you know, prize inside the Cracker Jack box or whatever it is, right? Free has always been a part of business models in every single industry. The thing that's different in the 21st century than the 20th century is that there now exist businesses where free is the central part of their business model, right? right? So if you look at Google, the most, the biggest product that Google moves is a search engine, which is free to use. Now, they also have a whole bunch of other products like Google Maps and Gmail and all these things, which are also free to use. Google makes a lot of money. But most of their particular business model is given stuff away and then they have a few products off of which they make a ton of revenue. And one of the things that, that I think is interesting about something like Google is it tells us this, teaches us this law. Well, I'm not sure that that's the best example for it, but that well-known well often equals well-paid. And so if there are ways to utilize free that help make you well-known, it can help increase your income in all types of ways. The problem is that so much of the time when people do things for free, it's out of a point position of weakness instead of a position of strength. It's not part of a large coherent plan to build some kind of a, some kind of a huge massive following or, or larger business plan. It's just, I'm not sure what to do. So I'll take any opportunity without any strategy behind it. And that's where the real opportunity is to learn how to uh, incorporate free into your business model so that in part you can uh, create more of the art that you're passionate about and in part so that you can make a financial model that works for you. Well, Jennifer, I remember when you, when we were talking on, when, when you were on this podcast, I was asking, I think you had, had mentioned a free course or something. And I think I said, how, how important is it to you that you, put out your absolute best product possible for the free stuff 
And you, your answer was it's imperative because that's people's, that's people's exposure to iCadenza. That's, that's their first exposure to what we do. And if we put out a product that's, that's less than stellar, they're not going to want, why would they pay us if our product for free isn't of value to them? Absolutely. I mean, very, I, I love, David, what you said in terms of that framing because, yeah, obviously when you're treating yourself or your business as a business, I think looking at the spectrum of options and where you put that paywall is a very strategic choice. So, of course, we use free as a strategy for a lot of what we do in order to, you know, we want to help people so that they can see us as a resource and then maybe pay us. Um, but I think um, to answer your previous question, James, of, you know, where do musicians stand? I agree. Most people I talk to have accepted the fact that they need to make a living and they are comfortable with the notion that they need to get paid. However, where I see the rub is there's a lot of fear around negotiation and they're still in the same zone of being trapped if they are accepting the offer that comes to them, lowballing their rates and, you know, accepting money or compensation that is still not setting them up to be successful. And I really think that is driven by fear, fear of losing opportunities, fear of seeing themselves in the in a lower power position. And I think that gets back to what Jeff was saying about value and how do we value ourselves to not just be worth anything, not just to be worth the, the, the first offer that we get, but to help the person who wants to pay us see the much bigger picture of what we have to offer and expand the value that we can bring. It's something that I'm constantly trying to work with artists on, and I think it comes down to many factors, their skills, their mindset of how they see themselves, which I know, Jeff, you talk about throughout the book, which I really love. So, yeah, I think it's all connected, the mindset, the money, all of these things. You know, what Jennifer is describing at the, at the beginning of her, her talk is, a, you know, it's a business model we call freemium, right? And the idea of freemium, it's like think Skype. Right? So it flips the traditional model on its head. So the traditional model is consumers pay for 98% of what you do, and then you give 2% of it away for free. Right? Freemium model flips it on its head. So you give away 98% of what you do, and you charge for some premium memberships or, or relationships that subsidize the other 98%. Now, if you're going to do that, you have to do it by scale. And so let me give you an example of this. And it's, I think it's a really interesting problem. Let's say, you, let's say we have two artists and they record an album. And all, on the front end, all of the expenses are the same. They're paid for. So when they release it, uh, everything's paid for. So they're on equal footing. And one artist has this strategy. They think, you know, you shouldn't, free is not, you should never give your stuff away for free. You've got to value it. So my goal is to give away, uh, sorry, my goal is to sell let's say uh, 500 albums at $10 a piece or 5,000 songs at $1 a piece, right? So in essence, at the end of this, if I am to be successful, by the end of the day, I will have $5,000 in earned revenue, right? Let's say artist B is enthralled with the notion of free and views this album instead of as a direct money maker, as a marketing card, as a way to really build his or her following. So maybe her goals are this. I'd like to sell 50,000 units of my, wait, did I, what did I say? 500. I'd like to sell 
5,000 units of my album or 50,000 songs at the price of free, right? It's a very different kind of business strategy. And her idea is, you know, if at the end of the day, I wound up, wind up netting two more private students or getting some high paying gigs because I've got thousands and thousands of people who are listening to my music, I'll be way better off than if I just got that $5,000, which is like goes, goes away, right? So now it's an interesting question to say, what is more difficult to give away, to, to sell $5,001 songs or to give away 50,000 songs at the price of free? That's an interesting business model question. But surely there could be benefits to both of those models. And it's really interesting to think of how does that fit into your larger, larger financial mission. Free is it's one of the most misunderstood concepts for any entrepreneur, especially for musicians. Now, Jeff, we're running a little short on time, so we just have to be a little mindful of that. But I, was, I really like this concept that you brought out in your book of being your own patron. And you mentioned this in several sections of the book, several chapters, but it's, it's basically, you know, re- rather than relying on, on uh, third parties or I mean, second parties mm-hmm. as, as your patron, can you just, this is, this is such a, a, uh, a different concept for people, but could you just speak a little bit about what do you mean by a musician or an artist being their own patron? First of all, I want to circle back on the free thing because um, I, I don't think you should ever work for free. And I think even the examples that we're talking about are not actually free. For example, you know, Jennifer talks about giving away a course in exchange for a lead, which I assume mm-hmm. means you're acquiring their information in some way, you're getting their email address. And there's value. Like we, we, we don't want our emails being put on a bunch of random lists and getting spammed. There are actually laws against this now. So when you give something away for free, you're bartering. Really, you're bartering if you're being smart about it. And I would argue that if you give away, you know, 50,000 downloads for free without acquiring, say, customer information, without any sort of back-end strategy to promote something else to that audience, the odds are against you that that will work. I mean, that's a, a foolish decision. Can it work? Sure. You know, there's all kinds of survivorship bias that plays in this where we hear the one person who gave their album away for free on MySpace and, you know, then won a Grammy. Uh, but like I live in Nashville. I know people who are doing this and the guy who cuts my hair, I got a hair guy. Uh, like this is something that, you know, he's struggling with. Like if I give my work away for free, just like everybody else's, how am I ever supposed to make money at it? And I think the point is to be strategically generous, which sounds, you know, a little bit more uh, cutthroat than I intend for it, but like to give your work away in the right channel at the right time so that you're exchanging something. And you've, there's got to be something that you get out of that so that you can pay for the work. I mean, that's the at the end of the day, you got to pay for the work. I got to pay for the the supplies, the computer, you know, the mixer, whatever equipment require is required for me to make this thing. I've got to I've got to pay for that. That costs something. So at very least, to keep the work going, have to cover that and probably my time. That said. I think there are multiple ways to do that, and it, it, it doesn't always require you to sell the work directly to the market. There is an incredible opportunity today for you to become your own patron. And what that means in a nutshell is uh, you basically have a few options. Um, and Lewis Hyde talks about this in The Gift, uh, which is a great 
book uh, that's that you guys may or may not be familiar with. You probably are familiar with it. It's it's a great book. It also is kind of confusing, uh, very academic book. But in the book, Lewis Hyde talks about. Um, you know, art is a gift and art basically exists in two economies today. It exists in the gift economy where people are just giving of their gifts and exchanging things, uh, more of a pre-industrial um, kind of way of exchanging goods and services. And then also exists in the market economy where you're delivering a good, you know, as David was talking about earlier, uh, and you're getting compensated for that good. So if I pay you $50 for that piece of art, like we're good. I paid you for, you know, the work and now I get it. Now it's it, it's, it's sort of a commodification. And art exists in both of these communities. And Lewis Hyde says, you've got to do one of a few things. One, uh, you've got to um, uh, have a day job, you know, and, and then make your art, uh, you know, in your spare time and hope that, um, like, like, and just do that. Like, be okay with that. Like, I'm going to make my art at night or in the morning on the weekends, and that's fine. And lots of people do that. Or you have to be able to directly sell your work to the market and be a commercial artist and, and make money off of that, which still, you know, a small, small fraction of professional artists, musicians, and writers are able to do. Uh, or you have to get a patron. You have to get somebody who is willing to pay you money to make your art. And at different periods in history, this was, you know, a more popular model. I think there's now a fourth option, which is you don't have to keep a day job. You don't have to, ha you don't have to be Taylor Swift. And, and you don't need a patron, uh, you can become your own patron. What that simply means is you are able to build a business that is in some way supplementary or ancillary to the art that you're creating that uh, allows you greater freedom and income to produce your art, which you may or may not be able to sell directly to the marketplace, but it provides greater freedom than a day job would. Because uh, you're in charge, you're running the business, and in many ways has some sort of overlap with what you're doing. And so an example of that would be a friend of mine, um, a guy named Ryan O'Neill, who is a part of a band called Sleeping At Last, which at one point was a whole band based out of Chicago, and they would tour. And now it's just him. And he stopped touring. He stopped this rat race of trying to make money um, selling his art directly to uh, fans. And that worked kind of well for a while. Uh, and he, you know, through a series of experiments, realized that he could uh, sell his music to TV shows and movies and, 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 and get into that world. And that's what he does. If you ever listen to an episode of Grey's Anatomy, one of his songs is on there. And so he didn't have to go get a day job. He didn't have to be super commercially successful. And he didn't have to get somebody else to pay for his work. He found a way to take his work and build a business around it uh, without, I don't think this is selling out, but it is being realistic about there's one thing that I do here that is commercially viable to a certain group of people. And so I'm going to build a business around that. And I'm also going to use that income stream to essentially fund all of the less commercial aspects of my art. It could be like an e-commerce business where you're selling hoodies on Amazon. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> I, I, just for an example. But that is funding your, your business as a musician. Yeah. I mean, I did this with writing. You know, I started out wanting to write books and I knew that the, you know, online course industry was exploding. And so I was like, well, I'll write books and I'll make money off of that, but I'll teach other writers how to do this as well. And this is, a, you know, this is a typical model in, in my industry where, you know, writers go and, and teach writing and write their novels and, you know, memoirs and books on the side. And so that was, I just believed. I was like, well, you know, 
I don't think I can make a full-time living off of my writing, so I'll find some way for me to still work for myself and have a lot of freedom, but I'll find a more monetizable way to do what I'm doing so that the business side of it funds the art side of it. And that's not for everybody. You know, you, ha you have to care about a business. You have to care about marketing. You have to care about finance and management and all these things. But for me, it's a heck of a lot better than going and working at Starbucks. True that. I love this. You know, there, there are two, well, there are probably more than two, but two big scare resources to think about. One is money uh, and the other is time, right? Money of all life's major problems, money is actually the easiest to solve, right? If you want more money, you can get, you can figure out ways to make more money as an artist. If you want more than 24 hours in a day, I, I don't know how you do it. You know, if you want more health, if you want more humanity or what, I mean, that's, those are trickier problems to solve. But if you want more money, you can get that. So one of the things that is really important is to be extremely strategic about the projects that you do to tackle. And I think that's what you're talking about, Jeff, mm -hmm. in doing this is if when you spend your time, is it going to lead, you know, I think a lot of artists, myself included, you know, at the beginning, you just take any opportunity that comes your way, whether in, in many cases, those correspond with the free ones, but they might even be ones that pay something for your time, but they don't really take you anywhere. So it seems kind of obvious if you think about it, if project A could take you this far and project B could take you this far, you know, further then you should go with project B. You should go with the one that will help you on the in the long term uh, the most. Most artists pursue the kinds of opportunities that other artists who are like them are pursuing. And I have always found that a lot of times the most helpful, I mean, if that works for you, that's great. But often the most lucrative opportunities are the ones where you are the only game in town. So for example, Jeff, you're talking about selling books, right? A lot of people want to sell their books in a bookstore. That is absolutely the hardest place to sell a book because it's competing with thousands and thousands of other books. But if you write a book about something specific, I, I was talking to someone the other day, she said, I write a book, it's about gardening. Well, you can get that book in Lowe's or you know, somewhere else where there are no other books, all of a sudden it has a monopoly on a certain kind of attention. So I think that's one way where you can be very strategic is to pursue the opportunities where you can be kind of a big fish in that pond. Uh, earlier today, I had a related conversation with a member of my team who's a musician. Um, she works for us part-time coaching, you know, members of our community. And um, she was saying how, had this realization that she went from making all of her income from being a performing musician to now not all of it comes from performing. It comes from doing work with us, doing other consulting work on projects that she's really excited about, just realizing that the arrangement is actually more fulfilling. It allows her to take on, it allows her to say no to a lot of the music performance gigs that she would have to do before that she actually hated. But there was this weird sort of grappling with a shift in identity from someone who only made their living from music into a phase where it's not all coming from performance and yet it's more fulfilling and it allows her to just do the kind of music projects that she wants to do. So I think, I think that's a really exciting paradigm and I think a lot of musicians or creatives back themselves into a corner and they say, I have to make my entire living from doing my craft um, in a certain way in order for me to seem legitimate, legitimate to myself. And I've seen so many musicians who don't even give themselves the opportunity to 
find other things that they love doing that might not be their music and that can enrich their lives in many other ways. And I, I would build on that. I agree with everything that you said. You know, we live in a world where it is oddly unremarkable to do one thing well anyway, because a lot of people do one thing well. Yeah. We live in a world where people are enthralled with multi-talents or multi-interests or whatever it is. So, for example, it is much likely that a video will go viral on YouTube. If you have one person playing five instruments, then five people playing one instrument a piece, even if the art is exactly the same. Because we're, in, we're super excited by people who can do more than one thing, because everyone else does that. The, you know, the other side of what Jennifer is saying is not only does it give you more variety and more possible paths that you can pursue, but it makes you more interesting and it opens up new opportunities, especially when you take these things and combine them in a such a way so that you are the only person who can do this thing in combination with this other thing instead of being one of a trillion trumpet players or guitarists or whatever it is out there. You know, I, I, I agree uh, with Jennifer that like some, like some person will say, I just want to play music every day of my life until I die. And that would be the dream. Until you've done it for like two years or 10 years, you have no idea what the dream is. I did that for a year. And by the end of the year, I was talking to a friend of mine who plays bass. Yeah, I played music professionally for a year. And uh, we toured and played five to 10 shows a week. I got better at playing guitar than I ever thought I could possibly be without trying. Just because when you're playing that many live shows, you get better than you ever would be practicing in your basement, you know, as a teenager listening to the stereo. I remember hearing a friend of mine who's a bass player, part of a, a band. He goes, man, if I couldn't play music, I don't know what I would do. And I literally thought, like, this is the first thought that came to my mind. I would just do something else. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with having that kind of commitment. Like my friend is a savant. I mean, he is brilliant. He can pick up any instrument and learn it in about two weeks. It's incredible. And, and the most exciting part of my year as a professional musician was writing a weekly blog post updating our fans uh, on where we had been that week. Oh, we went to Mount Rushmore this week. You know, we, we drove past the Grand Canyon and I would eloquently write of our, you know, adventures living in a 15 passenger van, you know, living the dream. I realized this is not my dream. I like music. I love writing songs. I love performing. I don't like this life. I don't like 12 hours in a van and my knees hurting at the end of the day and eating fast food all the time. I don't want this. I'm, I'm not interested in this, you know? And so I firmly believe that most people who consider themselves creatives, musicians, artists, writers, etc., if I could just do this, I would be happy. You have no idea. You have no idea until you've really, really done it. And the possibility that like you are just really good at one thing and will feel creatively fulfilled doing that thing for eight or nine or 10 or 12 hours a day, every day for the rest of your life, that is a very, that's very unlikely. Some people do that. Most I mean, you just see it, right? Like yeah, John Lennon, amazing songwriter, amazing musician, goes, oh, I also like painting. I like art, right? There, there are always these connections between these different mediums. And so why can't another medium for an artist be business or marketing or speaking or consulting or coaching? Now, I'm not saying do something that you hate to pay for something that you love. That requires a great deal of self-awareness to go, this is the one thing that I have to do for the rest of my life. And if I don't do it, I feel like, I feel like I'm settling. That's, 
a very immature idea. And I think you just don't know until you try it. Secondly, anytime, maybe, I don't know if you guys agree with this, uh, David and Jennifer, anytime I hear anyone say, I will be happy when, or if this doesn't work out, I don't know what I'll do. It's over. Like it's over. If I can't be a blank, then I don't know what I'll do. Well, guess what? Like you may not be a blank. You may not be a touring bass player. I was talking to my friend today who I was recording him for my podcast and he's a brilliant entrepreneur, but he loves playing music. And he was telling me about when he was 13 years old and his neighbor taught him how to play guitar. I was like, wait, I thought you play bass. He goes, that was a business decision. I go, what do you mean? He goes, he goes, well, I played guitar because I loved guitar and then everybody plays guitar. And so I had to go play bass because uh, nobody else would play it. And I was like, Oh yeah, that's pretty much every bass player's story. I know. Like, well, nobody else wants to play this. I guess I'll play it. I mean, it's not like Victor Wooten's story, but it's like pretty much every other bass player's story. And so, if you go like, if I can't do this this way, right? If I can't play the ukulele in a rockabilly band in you know North Carolina and go to the Bellshare Music Festival every year, I don't know what I'll do. Well, that <laughs> might not happen. And one of the things I talk about in, in the book is this idea of being stubborn. And it turns out that very successful creative people are very stubborn. And it turns out that very unsuccessful creative people are very stubborn. And so the difference between those two different kinds of stubbornness is being stubborn about the right things. Hmm. And Jeff Bezos said about Amazon, we're stubborn on vision, flexible on details. I find that when people are stubborn on details, they lose their vision. They have no vision. And more often than not, they'll fail because if that thing doesn't happen the way that you want it to happen at the time that you expect it to happen, you'll quit. You'll, you'll get disillusioned. You'll give up and, and, and move on um, and go, well, I just wasn't lucky. And you'll get mad at the system or the market or all this. You'll blame everybody else instead of going, I just want to do that. And I don't really care how I get to that. And that, when I get there, may not even look like what I think it looks like. But if, like for me personally, if I can, if, like, if people actually care what I have to say, oh my gosh, that is, that is galaxies away from you know, sitting on my couch with my laptop, writing words that nobody, that I thought nobody would ever read. Being flexible on a lot of things, but stubborn on like the vision, the idea. This is why I'm doing it. I just need to find a way to create my art and I'll do whatever I need to do to get there. But if I'm doing it in a way where I feel like is honest and true to myself, I'm good. And so I, I don't care. I, you know, I'm flexible about the details. Yeah, Jeff, when you're, when you're saying, I can't imagine anything else I would do. I was thinking, wow, it sounds like you, and I hear this a lot too, you know, it's, well, it sounds like you have an imagination problem. You <laughs> I mean, yeah. Instead of that same statement, you said that you're dealing with creatives, but if you can't imagine a single other thing that you would do, how could you be a creative? Go work on that. If you can't imagine what else you could do, how can you possibly imagine a viable career path, right? Go work that muscle. Yeah, it's, it's ironic, but I hear it over and over again, and it's a very uncreative thing to say. You're right. right. And we get, I mean, I was that way in my life too. I think a lot of people, you know, they, as they get older, they start to hone in on what they do. I knew what I wanted to do, what I wanted to do by age six, or, and certainly it was solidified by age 11. Mm -hmm. But for whatever reason, in my case, as I've gotten older, that world has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. Yes. And when I started out and I knew exactly yeah. what I wanted to do, I looked around the world, you know, as a classical and a jazz pianist. Mm -hmm. I looked around the world and said, 
saw no use for my skills. I, I thought at that point, classical music is dead, jazz is dead. My life has been a lot, a lie. What's interesting is my, my definition of what it's meant personally to be an artist has gotten bigger and bigger and led to all these other opportunities. And now even doing that, that what that I liked when I was younger, there are more lucrative and more meaningful opportunities even in that world than ever before. But I only would have gotten there because I was open and excited about all of these other kinds of things. All right. Well, I'm looking at the clock and sadly we are out of time, but Jeff, I, I just, I was wondering if you could just give us a few bullet points about Michelangelo because we've all heard of Michelangelo. I mean, we all followed the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles when we were kids, <laughs> but we, we haven't heard the story about Michelangelo and you just had so many details. Uh, like you just had this detailed history and we're, we're short on time, but can you just fill us in a little bit about Michelangelo and why was he so important as an artist in his time? Yeah, I was watching uh, like one of the recent remakes of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles with my son, one of the new movies, and um, they're one of the characters was meeting all the turtles, and they're like Michelangelo, Raphael, Donatello, uh, Leonardo, and and he and he's like, those are you know those are pretty uh, arrogant names for you know Ninja Turtles, uh, and I was like, oh yeah, that's funny, all these Renaissance masters. <laughs> so uh, the idea, the thread, and real artists don't starve is um, Michelangelo uh, at the time uh, of his death was the richest artist of the Renaissance. And at that point, the richest artist who had ever lived, nobody had done what he had done. He died with a net worth of about $50 million in assets. And until recently, you know, the past decade or so, we didn't really know about this. And I spoke to um, historian Rab Hatfield, who kind of uncovered this uh, basically through a bunch of old bank records. I think Michelangelo serves as a really interesting archetype for what I call a thriving artist uh, in that he exhibited a few things that I think really more often than not lead to success. And, and the reason I wrote the book is because more and more I see people uh, who are doing it, who are not stubborn about the details. They're flexible and their definite definition of an artist, as David said, keeps expanding and they're thriving in every way. I don't just mean they're making a bunch of money. They're making a living doing their creative work and they're fulfilled. They're happy about it. And uh, Michelangelo is, it serves as an archetype for this in a few, in a few ways, because one, he is a kind of a rags to riches story. He grew up with, um, you know, some potential connections to the aristocracy in um, Florence. And he grew up with a last name, which not every person did, but they didn't really have much. And, and his last name was Bonarati. All his life as a young person, he was told by his family that they were connected to nobility. And, and so he grew up with this mindset that he was, you know, from noble lineage, noble blood, and, and therefore had to restore his family to a place of honor, a place of prominence in society. And he was the breadwinner for his family. And so, you know, when he approaches his first patron, he does it very boldly. Uh, he ends up uh, working for a few years in the household of uh, Lorenzo de' Medici. And there are all these things that happen in part because he's really bold and believes that I'm not like all of these other peasant artists. Like I'm special. In one of his letters to uh, one of his relatives, he said, I never kept a shop like most artists did. And that's like a very pejorative thing that he's saying. He's going, I'm not like these shopkeeper artisans. 
I'm an artist. And, and so as a result, he ends up charging 10 times more than all of his peers. He values his work more than everybody. He ends up working with popes and princes and, you know, the highest members of society, all because he thought he was different and almost, you know, kind of in an arrogant way, right? Well, hundreds of years later, they find out that there's no noble lineage, that the Buonarroti family was not a family of nobles. And I think it's very interesting that because he thought it, he became it. Mm. And I think the same thing is true with being a starving artist. There's, I don't know, probably a hundred different case studies in the book or close to it. And I ended up talking to hundreds of thriving artists from all kinds of uh, backgrounds and industries and, and mediums. And a person could read that and go, well, these are survivor stories. You know, it's, it doesn't apply to me. And you, that's totally your prerogative. I think that's, that's true. You can, you can say that. Or you can go, if they did it, and 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 they did it, maybe I could do it. And I believe that we become the things that we think about. So Michelangelo's whole life is going, I come from a, a rich family. Therefore, I'm going to move into a field where they, these people are not renowned for being rich, and, and therefore, I'm going to use my art to make more than a living. Now, here's the most interesting thing about Michelangelo. After he broke that glass ceiling and became the wealthiest artist of his time, there were many people, many other artists who followed in his footsteps. He set a new norm. And for hundreds of years, right up until the Romantic period, artists were high-standing members of society. And so I really believe that to be a starving artist is a choice uh, in the sense that all the things we've talked about, if you believe uh, like art, there's no value to art, nobody will ever pay me for this, and I could ever make a living doing this, guess what's probably going to happen? And so I would just challenge the listener, the person ever paying attention to this, to just like as an experiment, try something else. Like if that actually hasn't helped you get to where you want to go, Maybe try what Michelangelo did and go, maybe I could be more. Maybe I could make a living off of this and see where that takes you. All right. Well, the book is Real Artists Don't Starve, Timeless Strategies for Thriving in the New Creative Age. It's written by our guest, uh, Jeff Goins. And also a big special thank you to David Cutler of the Savvy Arts Venture Challenge and Jennifer Rosenfeld of iCadenza. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Thank you. Thank you. For more podcasts and resources on making money, making music, and to download the free musicpreneur.com mobile app, head on over to musicpreneur.com today. Thanks for listening.